All right, we are going to be talking about a comparison of the first and second great awakenings. Before we do that, I'd like to pray. God, we've already heard so much good about revival, and I hope hearts are already being stirred. And as we think now about the works that you did in the last 300 years, I pray our hearts will stir even more. That we will see that age not as, as an age unlike our own. The great preachers of that day saw spiritual malaise all around them, and they also prayed fervently for revival, and you sent it, and there's no reason you couldn't do it in our day. And that's what we're praying for this weekend. In Christ's name, amen. In the heat of the summer on Wednesday, July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards ascended to the pulpit in Enfield to a congregation that was not his own and one that was described as dull and lifeless. He opened his Bible to Deuteronomy 32:35, which reads in part, in due time their foot shall slip, and then proceeded to preach one of the most famous sermons ever preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards pulled together every powerful metaphor a person could think of in order to explain and illustrate hell. Hell is deserved and God has no qualms sending sinful humanity there. Edwards thundered, the wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation don't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. And even in more vivid language, the bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. That'll preach. During the sermon, people broke out in wails and tears and crying. One observer said, before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I'm going to hell. What can I do for Christ? The commotion was so intense that Edwards never actually finished the sermon. When I was a pastor, I had the opportunity to substitute teach, maybe... I, I had to substitute teach would be the way to say it. And I was substitute teaching one day for a, a high school English class. And lo and behold, we were doing Jonathan Edwards that day. And we were doing this sermon. And it was my opportunity to take students and, and through this. And you wouldn't be surprised by their response. The responses are, are what you would expect. It, it's a foreign God to many people. This God of wrath, this God of justice. And unfortunately, this is the only introduction that many people get to Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole lot more, wrote on the love of God, and wrote beautiful things about heaven. And I'm not just saying this because he's one of our plenary speakers this weekend, but you must, you must go and listen to Sam Storm's sermon, Joy's Eternal Increase, Edwards on the Beauty of Heaven. I would probably put it in the top five sermons I've ever heard. And that have had the most impact on me. You can find it on Desiring God's website. It was a sermon he did 
on the anniversary of Jonathan Edwards' 300th year uh, birthday. The reality is, though, a sermon like this doesn't make sense if we only highlight the love of God to the exclusion of the holiness of God and raise humanity's moral ability to the exclusion of the doctrines of original sin and total depravity. But once we remember that God is holy, that mankind is depraved, we remember that God is just to damn all to hell. And it's only His mercy and His grace that saves any. Edwards poked on a nerve, and through the outpouring of the Spirit, many people were led to Christ. Edwards' sermon came to typify the first great awakening as God was calling wretched sinners to Himself, converting them by Himself. Contrast that with a sermon from Charles Grandison Finney, whose dates are 1792 to 1875, his sermon, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. Finney took his text from Ezekiel 18.31, Make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why will ye die? From this text, Finney argued that it is the duty of unconverted people to give themselves a new heart. And he actually mocks the doctrine of inability in his sermon, saying things like, some persons speak of a change of heart as something miraculous, something in which the sinner is to be entirely passive, for which he is to wait in the use of means as he would for a surgical operation or an electric shock. What's amazing to me about this, as a bit of an aside, is how Finney describes his own conversion as electric shock. Listen to what he says. Without expecting it, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to, to come in waves, in waves of liquid love. I'm going to say some uncharitable things about Finney today, but that's good. Conversion coming like a shock of electricity. Waves of liquid love rushing over us. At the center of this sermon is the idea that if God commands something, then it must be in our power to achieve it or God is unjust. Again, listen to him. It is a dictate of reason, of conscience, of common sense, and of our natural sense of justice that if God require of us the performance of any duty or act, he is bound in justice to give us the power to obey it. God impresses us to change through our motives, is what Finney is going to say. That is, like a lawyer who's just trying to convince a jury of the verdict, God is trying to convince us, through changing of our motives, to change our own heart for Him. But the new heart that leads, uh, that, that leads forth from this is not a new nature. He says it is unphilosophical, absurd, and unnecessary to suppose that a physical or constitutional change has taken place in him who has a new heart, to which I say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's already clear, I hope, that Edwards and Finney did not share the same theology but both spearheaded important movements. Since we don't have that long, I, I mostly want to just contrast Edwards as the leader of the First Great Awakening with Finney as the leader of the Second Great Awakening, recognizing this is oversimplification, 
because there's a lot of people in each different movement, and you can't paint with such a broad brush, but I'm going to do it anyway, and to recognize that, that it's not able to take into account a lot of the other socio-political type of issues happening in that day, which also played a factor into uh, the Great Awakenings. But I really want to focus on several issues, and that is talking to you about broadly, I expect many of you don't know much at all about the Great Awakening, so giving you the briefest, painfully brief histories of the Great Awakenings, then we'll, we'll look at the theologies of the Great Awakenings and the outcomes and then maybe some application at the end. The First Great Awakening really came out as a result of the Enlightenment in many ways. Things were rapidly changing. Human knowledge and exploration was exploding. The period led to a heightened sense of individuality. Things like democracy were on the rise, which led to personal faith. And the Awakenings played a large role in how people even viewed themselves in relation to society. But because of this Enlightenment, spiritual sense began to, to dim. People thought they could achieve anything through the power of the intellect. And, and then all of a sudden, the world was in need of great revival to be retethered to the ultimate truth. The First Great Awakening actually started about seven years before the sermon I, I read to you before by Jonathan Edwards. It began in 1734 when he began to preach on justification. And if we wanted to trace the full history, we'd actually have to go back to the Reformation, because the First Great Awakening are people who drank deeply of the Reformers. And, and you had the Reformers, and then things maybe cooled a little bit. And then in the 17th century, you had the, the Puritans in England, and you had the Pietists in Germany, and then things began to cool a bit. And that's when you had the Great Awakening happening in North America, especially in the beginning of the 18th century. That is just the way things go. There's always this ebbing and flowing, this warming and cooling. We can never say God's Spirit has arrived. We're there. We don't need any more awakening, any more revival, because the next generation is always in trouble of losing it. And history shows that over and over again. You can never be lazy spiritually. We might find the origins of Great Awakening actually not in America, but in England, and not in church, but in a private meeting. John Wesley and, and Charles Wesley formed a group of friends that they called the Holy Club. Also, they were called the Bible Moths, and later they'd become the Methodists. You want to talk about some cool guys, the Bible Club. What club are you in? Bible Club, right? Holy Club. But God did an amazing thing. And, and George Whitfield even attended this. And out of this small meeting of just a few people, the entire world was changed. If I don't get a chance to say this again this morning, I, I want to impress upon you what God can do in a small room with people who are fully dedicated to Him. Once upon a time, He did it with 11 people in an upper room and changed the world. And then through the Holy Club, He did it again. George Whitfield used his powerful gifts that were electric. He would preach open air to 25,000 people. They said he could move people to tears just by pronouncing Mesopotamia. <laughs> Did I do it? Are any of you moved? Is there mist in your eyes, perhaps? And it's, I think it's important to note that a lot of these 
people in the first great awakening, they knew each other. John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards never met, but they admired each other from afar as, as best they could through their mutual friend George Whitfield. The Great Awakening used new methods that took the church out of the building and brought crowds of people swarming around to hear the gospel. One scholar notes, in short, the Great Awakening engendered a new sense of gospel urgency and a new spirit of cooperation. They preached in the fields, transgressed parish boundaries, and said that the world was now their parish, doing all they could to promote the cause of of Christ. It's a beautiful thing when people even reach beyond their own denomination, reach beyond their own doctrinal issues. Now, now not too far, but enough to say we don't totally agree, but we're going to work together for the promotion of the gospel. By the thousands, people were converted in genuine heartfelt religion. Ian Murray estimates that somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people in New England joined church during that period of revival. And you heard Sam Storm say last night that somewhere probably around 300,000 totally in all the colonies were converted. Revival is short-lived. I feel like revival is almost always short-lived. Soon national matters were pressing. And it would take to about the turn of the 19th century before another revival would break out, which we call the Second Great Awakening. If the First Great Awakening kind of reflected the world of enlightenment, the Second Great Awakening reflected the world around it through romanticism. It was the age of, uh, of spirit of emotion. And it comes through, if you know the Second Great Awakening, through the preaching and through the activities that were done during that time. It, it's amazing how often when you study church history, the, the church begins to model the age around it. It's something we always need to be careful of. We need to be cognizant of that reality. America was a very different landscape during the Second Great Awakening as people expanded westward. Doug Sweeney helpfully speaks of different theaters of revival, different places where God was moving, where revival really kind of centered in, in New England, especially during the First Great Awakening, even though it went down the whole eastern seaboard. During the Second Great Awakening, as things went westward, uh, you have places like the Cumberland River Valley, in the so-called Cane Ridge Revival. You still had revival in New England with the Edwardsian revivalists. And then you had revival breaking out around the Erie Canal kind of area down into Ohio. And that was where Charles Finney was doing his work. And it, he, he traveled it so often, preached so much, that it became known as the Burned Over District because of how much he was preaching the gospel through that area. It's hard to know how many people converted during that time, but on the sheet I even gave you, there's some really interesting statistics about how denominations shifted during this period of time. There was a surge of growth among Methodists from 1776 to 1850, from 2.5% to 34.2% of those in the denomination. Baptists from 169 to 205 and then sharp decrease among Congregationalists from 20.4% to 4%, and Episcopalians from 15.7% down to 3.5%. So you see even the, the landscape of, of church shifting during this time to kind of lower church, um, lower church doctrine. The other significant issue coming out of the Great Awakening, we're going to talk about this in a minute, is the methods and the results of it. And that's where things get spicy. What about the theologies and practices? We, we might be able to summarize the differences between the awakenings simply by the title 
And this is what he was going for of Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. It's, it's actually on the table back there uh, from Banner of Truth. And it's really helpful in understanding what is the difference? Revival is something God does. Revivalism is something man does. And you can even see it encapsulated in, in some of the major doctrinal differences between the first and the second great awakening. The first great awakening placed a heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God, even in salvation, through a doctrinal system we call Calvinism. And the second great awakening, the emphasis was placed far more on man and man's role in salvation, a doctrinal system we call Arminianism. And even in those realities, you get a good understanding of the differences between these awakenings. The first great awakening, even Edwards said, was a surprising work of God. And the second great awakening, we will call it a recipe for revival. So the first great awakening, theologically considered. If George Whitfield was the great preacher and John Wesley was the great traveler, some 42,000 sermons and 8,000 miles on horseback, and Charles Wesley was the great hymn writer, then Jonathan Edwards was the great theologian and chronicler of the awakening. Edwards approached the awakenings like you would expect a biologist to study something under the microscope. According to Robert Caldwell's recent book, Theologies of the American Revivalists, it's very helpful for kind of sorting these types of issues out. The theology of the First Great Awakening revolved around three things, conviction, conversion, and consolation. And I want to focus mostly on conversion because Edwards said a lot about that. But with conviction, Edwards was totally convinced in the doctrine of original sin so much so that he wrote a whole book on it. And so did Wesley because it became such an issue in their day. Because of sin, we are morally unable to come to God. That is a big deal. Once you lose moral inability, then it is up to man in some way to be able to come to God. But if man is totally morally unable, then their will is even set against, opposed to the things of God. Which is why John Piper, channeling Edwards as he does, said, we don't need free will. We need wills set free. And once the will is set free by the power of God, then Christ is beautiful. Then Christ is someone we can cherish and someone who converts us to himself. Conviction comes with the preaching of the gospel as the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on sin and gives the sinner spiritual illumination that leads to a hatred of sin and a newfound love of God's holiness. And this effectual type of conviction through the effectual call leads to conversion. Edwards said this, there's such a thing as conversion and tis the most important thing in the world. And they are happy that have been the subjects of it. And they most miserable who have not. What is the most important thing in the world? Do you belong to Christ or not? Has Christ ransomed your soul? Has he called you to himself or not? Edwards poured a great deal of thought into the idea of conversion and how one could recognize if their conversion was legitimate. He especially did this to, to the critics. If you read about the First Great Awakening, it might surprise you. Depends on what picture of Edwards you have in your, your mind about maybe some sour, boring, 
guy who just stands up there with a candle and is, you know, lazily reading the sermons. We get some weird caricatures of Edwards. And yet, as he's preaching, people are falling out and fainting. It it looks like a Benny Hinn kind of sermon in in this place. And, And he's got a lot of detractors. A lot of people saying, is this from God? We've not seen people act like this. And so Edwards felt compelled to write multiple types of different works to describe this because he didn't want to see false conversion. He wanted to give people hope for how they knew if Christ had really come into their lives. He wrote a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in 1737 and the distinguishing marks of the work of the Spirit in 1741. In the latter, he goes through nine non-signs that do not guarantee the Spirit has been at work. But it also doesn't mean that because of these, it wasn't the Spirit. It doesn't guarantee the Spirit, but it also doesn't mean it wasn't the Spirit, if that makes sense. Here's just a few examples of non-signs. The work is carried out in an unusual or extraordinary way. The revival has effects on the body. Tears, trembling, groans, loud cries, great impressions or imaginations, foolish, irregular conduct. All these things, he said, do not guarantee just because you've had that experience that you're converted. But he would also say there are converted people who have had these experiences he then gives five positive signs. What, what, how do you know awakening has come? How do you know true conversions are happening? Things like it raises people's esteem that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It leads to repentance. True, deep, lasting repentance. It exalts one's view of Scripture. People crave the Word of God. One of the things you can see in a new believer most often is they want to be in the Word. They crave it, as Scripture says. And it compels people to love of God and neighbor. These are some ways that people can tell the conversion is legitimate. And Edward spent a lot of time thinking about this. So that's what I love about Edwards. He, he's a serious-minded theologian who will not compromise on doctrine, but he's willing to see the Spirit of God work in ways that many of us have maybe never seen the Spirit of God work before. And then finally, consolation, which gives the believer comfort. They belong to God. It comes through some maturity, through more love of God, more love of people, more love of the Word, as believers begin to sense their security in Christ. Now compare that with the second great awakening, which we're calling a recipe for revival. Like Edwards, Finney also thought a lot about the nature of revival. Unlike Edwards, Finney emphasized the role of man in the crafting of revival. These are some long sections, but I think they're really helpful in in, in us understanding how Finney approached these things. Religion is the work of man. It is something for man to do. It consists in obeying God. It's man's duty. It is true God induces him to do it. He influences him by his Holy Spirit because of his great wickedness and reluctance to obey. But nevertheless, it's the work of man. What about revival? A revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. As much so as 
any other effect produced by the application of means. There may be a miracle among its antecedent causes, or there may not. The apostles employed miracles simply as a means by which they arrested attention to their message and established his divine authority. But the miracle was not the revival. The miracle was one thing. The revival that followed was quite another thing. The revivals in the apostles' day were connected with miracles, but they were not miracles. Revival is about creating excitement. God has found it necessary to take advantage of the excitability there is in mankind to produce them to obey. It is impossible for God or man to promote religion in such a state of things, but by powerful excitements. So, so whatever you can do to generate excitement among people, whatever that looks like, you can do in order to bring about conversion. Finney called these the new measures. The new measures were things like protracted meetings that we've talked about. I, I, I felt very much akin to Sam as he was talking about scheduling revival. And when I was pastoring, I had the budget for two revivals a year. And, and, and I, I, I wish I had more time to tell the story. It, there was a surprising work of God that was happening in that small town. We used zero revivals and the church tripled because the Spirit of God was moving. Apart from revivals that are scheduled? Yeah, apart from revivals that were scheduled. It's amazing. Public prayers offered by men and women alike. Most controversial of all was the anxious bench. The anxious bench. Finney believed that if, if one left sinners in the pews, they would flatter themselves and incorrectly conclude that they had not been touched by God and were now converted. The anxious bench is a, is a bench that sat up near the front, and as the preacher preached and thundered the powerful sermon, people who are feeling the conviction of God would get up from their seats while they were preaching, come up, sit on this. People would be praying for them. They were under the conviction of God. No way you can manipulate that. Maybe you're noticing, and you've heard it a lot this weekend already, we are so indebted to Finney's new measures that I'm not sure we oftentimes realize how new those are. The, these measures are infants in the history of the Christian church. I just mentioned where I was pastoring in western Kentucky, and I, I'm not sure that they could ever imagine a human being could be saved apart from the altar call. It didn't matter what we were doing. I had to do an altar call. So one, one uh, weekend, we were doing our children's Christmas play. And the, uh, you know, I, I, as a pastor, I, I dutifully obliged and showed up. I didn't have kids that were old enough to be in it yet. And, and there we were. And there, there's two types of children's plays. There's the ones that are really bad, but they're endearing because they're kind of cute in some ways. And there's those that are just really bad, and they're really bad, and there's almost nothing redeemable about it. This was the second kind, right? This was the ones that you're just gritting your teeth, burying it, trying to get through it. And I remember at the very end of it, I'm ready to just kind of get up and leave as I see it's, it's winding down. And my children's director comes to me and she says, you're going to do an altar call after this, right? I obliged again dutifully and gave an altar call. And it was just amazing to me, the, the, the thought of, there's not even been preaching of the word but we, we are so used to this tradition now 
that we don't think people could get saved without it. They're in church, therefore God must be doing something that could save them, therefore there must be an altar call so that people can be saved. I think if I had ever said to them, you know, Jesus and John the Baptist and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Edwards and all these people did not have an altar call and people still got saved. It's amazing that God can work without that, but he has and he does often. And I'm not even necessarily saying we, we throw it out. But we, we better know where this stuff comes from. We better be thoughtful about these types of things if we're going to use them. Using the same category that Caldwell gave for uh, the first great awakening, I think it's helpful to put Finney's theology through that same type of conviction, conversion, consolation ideas. Caldwell uh, notes that Finney essentially embraced the scaffolding of Edwardsian theology, but rejected one of its central components, its affirmation of moral inability. That's a big central component. Once you lose moral inability, you, it, it, theology is an ecosystem. And once you, you move one piece, it affects the way all the other pieces fall out. Once you move moral inability, that will skew the way you think of all of salvation. What exactly is the Spirit convicting you of? And what exactly is your ability to turn from sin to God? Finney says the work is up to you and the Spirit nudges just with the opportunity to persuade. If you know your history, you'll hear Finney saying, if God gives you a command, you must be able to fulfill it is simply a warmed-over heresy from whom? Pelagius. Augustine put that to bed 1,500 years ago now. It's just Pelagianism. And the church has repeatedly, council after council, said, we do not affirm that. God commands all kinds of things you can't do. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then he talks about conversion, and maybe you could guess this by now, but for Finney, conversion is simply making a decision. When we, we have all these campaigns about decision-making, decision-making, decision-making. Is there part of the will that must decide to follow Christ? Absolutely. Once Christ has spiritually illumined you through the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But, but when it becomes decisionism, that natural man can do on his own, We've transgressed important doctrinal boundaries, I would say. The fundamental conversion for him is to turn from selfishness to God because of his benevolence. And then consolation. There really is no consolation in Finney's system. Just as easy as I could come to God, I must continue in those works or else I will not be with God anymore. So how do you console the believer? How often do you have to take the believer through valleys of doubt and suffering and disappointments and say, keep looking to Christ. He's not dropped you. He's not forgotten you. Yes, but look at my life. Yes, but I say look to Christ. More grace in Christ than sin in the sinner. And if your heart is longing for Christ... That is a good sign that you belong to him. 
We don't have time to work all the way through Finney's troubling theology, but Michael Horton, a theologian, uh, in a 1995 article, gave an instructive and scorching summary of, of Finney. Thus, in Finney's theology, God is not sovereign. Man is not a sinner by nature. The atonement is not a true payment for sin. Justification by imputation is insulting to reason and morality. The new birth is simply the effect of successful techniques and revival is a natural result of clever campaigns. Again, theology is an ecosystem. Move pieces one way or another and the whole thing begins to shift. And every major point of doctrine, Finney has to tamper with it. One of the things I think is helpful is thinking, what, what came of these revivals? It, it, you had to be careful of like a genetic fallacy. Just because there was a revival and then something else happened later that we blame it or we praise it. Um, and yet I'm going to kind of do that a little bit, if that's okay. What comes of the First Great Awakening? One of the biggest things that comes from the First Great Awakening is the modern mission movement. Timothy George draws a very clear line from Jonathan Edwards to Andrew Fuller to William Carey. And William Carey is the, the, the fountainhead of the modern mission movement. And from, from Carey to Judson to Patton and scores of others, the nations beheld the glorious light of the gospel. What an amazing effect Jonathan Edwards, this caricature of a stodgy theologian, has as he publishes even David Brainerd's diary and missionaries for the last two to three hundred years have, have been pricked in the heart to take the gospel to hard places. The lenses are too rosy if we just say everything about the Great Awakening was perfect and fine and wonderful. It wasn't. One theologian notes that the 18th century revivals did not turn out as Edwards had hoped. They caused division and spiritual rancor. And though our Edwardsian theology won for the day, the cracks that formed at the end of the 18th century became craters of unbelief in the century to come, which is why I do think there were parts of the Second Great Awakening. I think a lot of people probably were saved, legitimately. What comes of the Second Great Awakening? Well, it's hard to overestimate in, in our current culture today the significance of the Second Great Awakening. Mark Knoll, a church historian, an American church historian, said this, The Second Great Awakening was the most influential revival of Christianity in the history of the United States. So while the First Great Awakening was wonderful, many true conversions, the Second Great Awakening has left lasting impact even into today, one of the most remarkable results of the Second Great Awakening is how many people and how many groups troubling, please hear me carefully, troubling and downright heretical. So not everybody I'm going to name is necessarily heretical, but groups like Mormonism, groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and others got their start in the Second Great Awakening. Look at the fruits of these movements. The one that led to missions across the world and the one that led to false teaching in many corners of the world. What do we learn today about these awakenings? 
First, I think doctrine matters and so do means. Knowing original sin, total depravity, moral inability, substitutionary atonement, election, Trinitarian operations, and a host of other doctrines is not just for professional theologians. You must see these as preciously sweet and not academically remote. Doctrine matters for your salvation and the salvation of others. What does Paul tell Timothy? Watch your life and your doctrine closely. People are going to be saved by these things, and you have to know them. And for the believer, these doctrines should be life-giving. But I'm amazed how many Christians can't tell the difference between flowers and weeds and therefore let anything grow in the garden of God. It's no coincidence that an awakening that de-emphasized doctrine would have so much devastation in its wake. And I think we can't overlook those problems and ask ourselves, what types of things are we doing in the church today that are rooted in wrong places? Along with that, recipes for revival are precursors for heresy. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the, by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I didn't have time to, to, to find this out. I would love to know what Charles Finney did with that verse. We refuse to practice cunning. We, we refuse to be so clever in our campaigns that we can manipulate people into conversion and manipulate the atmosphere to bring people to Christ because the ends justify the means. That's not what Paul says. There should be something Christian about our means. There should be something Christ-centered about our means, which is centered on the preaching of the gospel like H.B. said earlier today. Warn people of hell and call them to flee to Christ. Grace, mercy, and love seem to be the only facets of the gospel shared today. It's a lopsided gospel. God's grace is seen to be costlier when we know we deserve nothing but God's floodwaters that once drowned everyone but eight people. God's mercy is seen to be more precious when we know that we stand on the quicksand of his judgment that could swallow us at any moment. God's love is seen to be more beautiful when we see the darts of his wrath rightly aimed at us. If we will not remind people that they need to flee the wrath of God by turning to God, they will have a shallow faith because they will not feel the full weight of the price tag of their souls. We cannot neglect the teaching of hell because it's uncomfortable. Jesus didn't do that. And yet it's scarcely taught today because we, we want to open wide the floodgates. We don't want to put any barrier for people who are not believers to come to Christ. And yet, in the Great Awakening, it was reminding people that there is a God of justice and wrath who will judge them that brought people to salvation. Don't think you can be more clever than the gospel itself. If Jesus warns people of hell to come, who are we 
to neglect the warning. Finally, the Spirit falls when He wants and where He wants, but we should set the kindling. As Sam said last night, true revival is always surprising. We need to set the kindling of prayer, of evangelism, of preaching, of teaching, of Scripture reading, of gathering with the saints, and believe that God could send His fire at any moment. And I want to pray right now and join the course of prayers that have already been offered up this weekend that we will pray that God would do something amazing in Phoenix. It is striking to me. This, this, this overwhelming sense always grabs me at an event like this. And that is what? There may be 200 people here this weekend. 250 maybe. How many people surround us who maybe never even stepped into a church? who've never heard the gospel. And here we are, we're thinking about revival. We better be thinking about them. How is God going to revive me that leads to my neighbor being revived? I'm going to pray that he burdens us now for that. Father, it'd be the most useless thing we could do all weekend to come and cheer and be excited about revival, but not pray for it. Not beg for it. God, do a work in this church in sovereign grace and, and in Trinity and in redemption and in all the churches that are gathered in this room together. Something that spills over into these neighborhoods that, that people right now who are, who are just going about a lazy Saturday not thinking about the things of God in one year's time will be so drawn to the Gospel that their lives are changed, their families are changed. They're now part of the people bringing revival to this city. As Rich said, we need to pray to a big God who can do big things. You've done it before. We pray you'll do it again. In Christ's name, amen.